0: head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, <laughs> did you hear about that? I didn't find the one, I found someone I respected and we made it
1: the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic.
2: Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand, On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled.
0: I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the
1: Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders, and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers, here to start conversations Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is writer, performer, and public speaker, Alok Menon. Alok is the author of Femin Public, Beyond the Gender Binary, and Your Wound, My Garden. As you'll hear, I've been following Alok's work for a little while now, and I'm so honored to have them on the podcast today. In this conversation, Alok said so many profound things about the complexity and simultaneity of life. We talk about what happens when we choose to live in authenticity to ourselves and why we sublimate our own shame and grief. Alok explains how most of us don't have room for love, but that once we become familiar with our pain, the grief releases its hold on our life so that we can choose joy and freedom and peace for ourselves and for others. So let's get to my chat with Alok Menon. Okay, so let me get into it because I have so much that I want to talk to you about. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you're doing the podcast because obviously I I love my job because I get to talk to amazing people and learn and constantly open my mind. But I have to say that like you are remarkably one of the most inspiring kind of expansive like like becoming getting to know you and first first becoming familiar with your work and your poetry which resonated with me so deeply a friend of mine actually gave me a book of yours which is how i found you and i just i feel like you're such an amazing teacher for me even just reading your words so i just wanted to thank you for being here first and foremost
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Where I would love to begin is sort of asking you about your journey to your truth and how old you were when you started to contemplate or question the gender binary. How, how young were you and how did those questions first enter your consciousness as you were kind of framing up?
2: You know, before shame, we were free, which means that we were born free. So I was born with a heart and two lungs and no shame,
1: hmm.
2: which meant that I used to dance and not care at all what anyone thought. And I would wear my mom's sylvar and jewelry and dance to the latest Bollywood songs <laughs> until like the age of like six or seven, And it was never about gender, it was always about freedom. I had an emotion that I wanted to share to the world. I felt like who I was and my art was beautiful and precious and worth sharing. And I think adults have a lot to learn from kids about believing that what we have to say is worth saying and how we have to dance is worth showing. And so even before the language of gender, I had the feeling of joy. And I always like to begin there because I think we get so caught up on the language, the discourse, the politics, that we kind of forget at the end of the day, it's actually about a really simple human emotion, which is joy. And then people were so challenged by my joy and by my freedom, that they began to tell me, well, boys don't do that. Oh, you wanna design fashion? Boys don't do that. Oh, you wanna be in gymnastics? Boys don't do that. You wanna dance? Boys don't do that. And so boy was actually a sort of Trojan horse for shame. It was, you need to keep quiet, stop dancing, stop experiencing your joy. And so I try to flip that question and say, it's not when I first knew it's when they first discriminated Mm -hmm. because it's about moving the sort of onus away from me towards how society continually feels the need to put us into boxes when that's not how we're born. So I would say by the age of maybe eight or nine, I fell into a deep depression because I couldn't understand why the things that brought me so much joy were also bringing me so much punishment.
1: Did you internalize the shame at that age?
2: 100%. I genuinely believed that there was something wrong with me and that if I could just change myself, then I would make the world a better place. And so that's, I think, the situation that a lot of LGBTQ youth find themselves in is you're made to feel as if everything is your fault, and you can't ever think that what you are is precious and beautiful or, or, or righteous or right, because at every level in culture, you're told that you shouldn't exist. Mm. And so there wasn't even, a, I think at that point, I didn't even have a frame of reference that there was anyone like me or that what I was experiencing was not just about me, all I knew was that I was a problem.
1: And so how did you navigate through those waters into adolescence?
2: I'm really glad that we're having this conversation now because had we had this a few years ago, I would have been really cruel to myself. Mm -hmm. I would have said things like, I was super repressed and really closeted and self-hating and dissociated. And sure, there's an element of truth to all of that. But I'm really trying to do this punk thing, which is being compassionate (laughs) and actually (laughs) understand that I had to go through all of that to get to where I am now. Like, There's no way that I would have the self-acceptance I have now if I didn't have that kind of self-repression that I had then. So what I did is I did a disappearing act. It was my first major performance art piece. (laughs) <laughs> I was missing in action for over a decade. I just literally self-immolated. I completely became a shell of myself. And I did it so masterfully that everyone thought that I was happy. And that everyone thought that I was just a successful, smart, bright student. But I had this deep internal anguish that I was feeling like basically, okay, there's never going to be a place in my life where I can be free or meet. And so I, I just kind of operated under the premise that in order to survive, I had to shut up. And so I started to wear only black. I started to not allow any photos, videos, or audio recordings of me because I didn't want anyone to like comment on how feminine my voice was or my gestures were. I I really the straitjacket was not just a metaphor, it was a choreography that I followed diligently. And I just played pretend, played pretend. But all the while, and this is where the compassion enters, I knew that this was a means to an end. I knew that this wasn't gonna be my permanent condition. I knew that I had to do what I was doing then so that I could be free now. And the way that I knew that was through literature. So I often say, you know, my library was where I met my first best friends, just reading books, and, and developing sort of friendships with characters, and especially reading fantasy and science fiction, and being like, oh wait, this world is one of many worlds. And reality is an ongoing construction project, and that it's actually possible to change the circumstances around you. And so while I couldn't have physical mobility, I had deep mobility of my imagination. And so, what i actually understand now is that i had to shut off so that i could retreat inside so that i could imagine my future and so much of what i'm living now is the future i imagined as a young person and now i'm really understanding young people are genius like imagine how powerful we were to survive and to fight for our future selves before we even knew what we were doing Imagine that kind of courage and conviction. And so now I'm trying to say like, no, I, I actually am proud that my body innovated to dissociate. I'm proud that my body created the capacity for me to live the life that I'm living now. Sure, we wish that the road was less checkered with so many fewer potholes, but at the end of the day, it still got us where we needed to get.
0: head to airbnb.com slash host.
1: Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I'm curious at what point or how your parents were relating to you through this period of time and how your relationship with them is now. I read this um, quote once and as a parent, I found it particularly terrifying because it was something like parents will do absolutely anything for their children, except let them be who they actually are. Mm. And, you know, it gave me chills and I thought, Oh my God, what are the unconscious ways that I'm not letting these guys be who they actually are? And what is the unintended consequence of that? Through no fault of their own, right. We're all living in these like incredibly constrained Constructs of what we're supposed to be and what's acceptable and what success looks like, and all of that. So, I'm just wondering what that journey was like for your parents.
2: You know, I'm not a parent yet, but it feels like such a hard job. (laughs)
1: Like, so
2: (laughs) I think in the past, I was once again quite cruel to my parents, being like, You didn't do a good job. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, You did your best. Because here's the thing, my parents wanted me to be safe and they thought safety meant conformity. Mm -hmm. And they thought that if they didn't speak about the thing, then the thing would go away. So my parents knew that I was different. I mean, I literally only wore my sister's clothes when I was a kid. Like my aunt, who's an amazing lesbian activist, clued in my parents even before I knew your kid is gonna be queer, get ready. (laughs) Like, so they knew, but they never were proactive or brought it up to me or got curious or asked me what's it like in school for you or are -hmm. things going on? And I wasn't just leaving breadcrumbs, I was leaving entire Subway sandwiches, foot long (laughs) clues. Like, please check in with me. Like there's something going on here, you know? But my parents never got curious with me. And so I asked them, I'm like, why? Why did you never open up that channel for communication between us? And it all boils down to, they were afraid. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually fear is, is what the culprit is on both sides. I was afraid of telling my parents what was happening to me because I wanted to protect them, which is what we do as kids. That's the plot twist. is that kids feel like they're parenting their parents as well. And so I didn't want my parents to know that I was being bullied and persecuted because I didn't want them to be sad or hurt. And then my parents moved from fear because they didn't want to bring up gender or sexuality with me because then it would be real, which means then what I was going through was real. And so what fear does is it makes us live in this mythological land, where we fear manufactured, made up things, and we can't even pay attention to what's real and concrete in front of us. And so what I've been trying to do with my parents now is to really practice something that we never did when I was younger, which is actually be honest about what we feel. And it's been a real transition because I think it's so easy to retreat into mom, child, like into the role and not the person. But what I've been trying to introduce to my parents now is like, I see your complexity and your humanity. You see mine, let's not default into these roles. Let's be honest. Be honest to me about your resentment and your bitterness and the ways in which like being a parent prevented you from pursuing things you wanted to do professionally. Be honest with me about your jealousy about the life that I've been able to carve for myself that you couldn't because of the failure of your imagination. And once we put that on the table, that's when we can work through it. Because I think what the fear actually all boils down to is it's a fear of losing each other. Mm -hmm. I think my parents were afraid that they would lose me. And I was afraid that I would lose them. Mm -hmm. And now what I'm trying to say is like, whether or not we like it, we're stuck together for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to worry about that anymore, which means that we can be courageous and honest and vulnerable and gnarly with each other and know that we're coming back. And, And that's, that's a new thing. And so it's it's been really hard for them because I'm introducing an entire way of navigating the world that they've denied themselves because it begins at home, right? It begins with being able to actually ask yourself, how do I feel about what just happened? And I think most people don't even ask themselves that. They just default into how other people tell them they should feel about something.
1: And it's so interesting because I also think that, generation of parents, the margins were so narrow, right? They really weren't raised with any kind of understanding that paradigms are meant to be broken. You know, it's all sort of like, what will the neighbors think, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that I hope I'm seeing, and I I hope you are seeing too, the the world slowly change or the arc kind of bend towards more understanding and kind of like widening of what we're comfortable even contemplating. You know.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that people are slowly waking up to the spiritual death and hollowness of prioritizing your neighbor's point of view over your own. Right. And right. so it's been beautiful because now my mom, who is in her 60s, is able to really have co- courageous conversations with me like, whoa, I was taught to believe that stability would come through being married, having kids, family. And now I'm like, that was so foolish because I see what you're doing with your friendships and your community. And you guys are actually innovating for something that would have helped all of us. Mm -hmm. You're teaching me that I didn't have to like be private about my pain and my struggles, that I could have had community and that that community could show up for me as I'm aging. And I'm like, yeah, mom, queerness can save the world. (laughs) It's not just about like LGBTQ communities. It's the ways that we've fashioned the kinds of vulnerability rituals we have, because what is coming out, but a ceremony that every person needs, not just queer people, even straight cis people should be able to say, Hey, everyone, who you thought I was is not who I want you to see me as. And I need you now to see me for the real me. That's amazing. Like we all need that ritual. And so I think what's been really beautiful now at this phase in my life is I really do feel like I'm reparenting my parents. Like I feel like that inversion has happened and it makes so much sense to me to be like, you built the capacity for me to learn this knowledge so that I could come back and give you this knowledge. And even though it's stubborn and hard, I do believe old people can change and that they want to. And that the, the way that they change is not through, once again, an emphasis on the language. It's more about the heart. When I'm able to get my parents to realize this is about your happiness, your sense of, f- f- of fulfillment too, that's when they're on board.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think you said something as it pertains to parents, you said something interesting around, you know, sometimes it's us, the children that have to sacrifice the parent-child dynamic in order to see them as full human beings with all of their complexities and everything and i'm older than you're not exactly my generation but i do think there's something in this generation below where there's an opening and an allowance for this kind of contemplation and accountability and and i think it's okay that it's our responsibility in a way to create this space for our parents to hold them in it and say, I'm going to unhook from the dynamic of being your daughter or your child. And I'm going to allow for this new thing to occur and grow between us. And, you know, kind of let go of the resent when you're saying reparenting, it's because the child is sort of making the first move, right. And saying, Mm. you know, this is, this is who I want to be. And this is kind of who I demand, you be i demand you love yourself more you are more loyal to yourself the way that i am and sometimes i think it's almost like being a, a white cisgender heterosexual person i i don't have anything intrinsic that's easy to see from the outside that i am fighting against like right it's like i have the sort of misfortune of having been born as I am. So I'm not confronted daily by, you know, these really um, important, larger, like confrontational things, right? Like in the way you are, which is such a gift. Like I see that as such a gift because I could have gone through my life just conforming, conforming, conforming because, you know, it was sort of easier in a way, right? It's like, I can tell that lie to myself because it, it maybe wouldn't have killed me in the same way it would have killed somebody else, right? Because it was such a diversion from like what's acceptable.
2: Yeah, totally. But also then what ends up happening is people then mistake anguish and like a low grade pain as the only way to live. Right, And so this is one of the things that I've noticed, even with this rhetoric of like privilege, I don't wanna live the life that like white cis straight people have sketched out as a good life because it's still so much suffering. It might not look like immediate violence, but it looks like what will the neighbors think. It looks like that deep, deep sacrificing of your dignity, of your complexity, of your humanity for comfort and stability. And because I had the luxury of knowing that no one would ever be comfortable around me, I had the freedom and the opportunity to say, okay, so then what does my life look like on my own terms? Mm -hmm. And so I think what actually a lot of homophobia and transphobia and racism are is elaborate systems of envy. Mm -hmm. Because marginalized people actually get to craft lives that are worth living and that are on our own terms. And a lot of people with privilege and power are looking and peering being like, what do you mean life gets to be good? What do you mean you get to have community and friendship and you don't have to be lonely and insufferable? And so I think this is what a big departure from a lot of the ways in which I was sort of raised to think about social justice is, is who really holds the power. Certainly, certain demographics have the wealth, the influence, the authority, the proximity to safety, but my community holds the power because the true power is authenticity, and the true power is beauty, and those are currencies that no matter how much money you have, no matter how much stability you have, no matter how optimized you are with your beauty regimen or healthcare routine, you're never going to experience, like, an iota of the kind of power that we have, that's about waking up and saying, I chose this life for myself.
1: And not only that, that, you would risk everything to have your life, right? mm -hmm. I mean, you said one at dinner once, something about like, you would risk your life. You would would die to be who you are.
2: Mm -hmm. Because I understand that actually living a lie, is a form of spiritual death. Yes. I spent the first 18 years of my life a shell. And that's why I have so much compassion for everyone because I know what it's like to live someone else's lie and to be in fear constantly and to, to stifle every creative urge mm-hmm. to feel like if I expressed my fluidity, my ambivalence, my contradiction, then I would be abandoned. And it destroyed me, it wrecked me. And so now, sure, my life isn't safe externally, but it's safe internally. And I wouldn't give that up for the world. Internal peace is truly the best peace. And and I think it's ultimately the peace that when we die matters the most because in those sort of quiet confrontations with mortality, we have to say, I have no regret. And I know that I'm living a life right now that's preparing me for that deathbed. That will actually, when death comes and knocks, I'm going to say, hey, I've lived the most scintillating life. Mm -hmm. I am so proud of the ways that I've shown up on earth. How many people can say that? And that's the power, I think, of trans culture, trans history, trans life, is that they say and focus on our death, but neglect the ways that we're living. And they say that they're living, but neglect the ways that they're dying.
1: Yeah, mic drop. It's so inspiring. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you cultivate that abject loyalty to yourself. Is it a consciousness or are there tools? Like how 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 do you do that?
2: I'm really glad that you're asking that because. I want to make sure all the listeners know that this is possible for everyone, regardless of your identity. Even if you have been kind of incapacitated and shielded with your privilege and your power, you too can do this. And that's where I put the focus of my work now is in the past, I used to think that I needed people to show up for me. And now the shift for me is I need you to show up for yourself. And if you show up for yourself, then showing up for me will happen inevitably because you'll understand that I am not different from you, that we're actually both souls first. And so it's actually through doing this intimate work of self-discovery and self-acceptance that we unlock a deep sense of community and interconnectivity. That's what happened in my life. The more I learned how to love myself, the more love I had for everyone. I just truly feel now I'm (laughs) capable of loving anyone and anything because I loved myself. Mm -hmm. So the way that we began that process of self-love is, I, I think about the work of the late great Bell Hooks who is an amazing black feminist writer. She says, most people say they want love, but true love requires courage because it requires us to say that we've never known love Because love cannot coexist with abuse. And most people are defending the narrative that they can. And so she says, in order to actually welcome love into our lives, we have to become fluent in our lovelessness, which means we have to sit with our pain. Mm -hmm. So the first step is really feeling your pain. And the truth is, we as a species go through as many rituals as we can to not feel our pain. We have so much unprocessed grief, so much. And the thing is, we feel like we become a bad person if we have grief because we're complaining or we're selfish. But I need you to understand that like that grief is so natural and it's been knocking for years saying like, feel me, feel that deep sense of pain of the ways in which your parents said that they loved you, but they only loved the incantation of you that they made, the projection of you that they needed. And you felt that Incongruity as a young person, even before you have that language, wait, why do my parents only love me when I'm happy and not when I'm scared and sad and lonely? Feel that grief and feel it even though you couldn't feel it back then. Feel the grief of being in romantic relationships that you thought that someone finally saw you, but they didn't. They just saw themselves in you. Feel that grief of being instrumentalized by someone, feel the grief of living under a government. That said that we were free and equal, and then it's the opposite of that. Feel the pain of it. And I want to be very clear this is extremely hard work. Like feeling that pain is volatile and difficult and thorny. But it's when we become familiar with that pain that it actually releases its hold on our life, and then we have room for love. Right now, most people don't have room for love because that space is filled with bitterness, resentment, envy projection, and ego. So even before we can start talking about love, we have to clear space in here. And the only way we clear space is grief. So then when we're now ready to receive love, this is where being a poet has really taught me so much about how to navigate the world. As a poet, my job is to notice the world, just to watch, and then to find beauty in things that people dismiss as insignificant, like a car splashing some water on a sidewalk, And one telling of that story, it's just a mundane moment in New York City. And the other, this is such an incredible testament to beauty and color and cinema. It's such a powerful commentary on so many huge themes. So, as a poet, what you do is you take a magnifying glass to every single situation and you learn that there's an entire theater and an ensemble of actors in every moment. And certainly there's things that are mean and horrible and bad, but alongside it, so much beauty, so much wonder, so Mm -hmm. much miracle. And so with the kind of magnifying glass of a poet, start to notice your life and the ways in which love is omnipresent. So for example, your body is rooting for you. In fact, every single organ in some ways has co-authored a love poem to keep you alive. The fact that you're breathing right now is the most profound testament of love there ever is in the world. So you just notice that and you're like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Then you notice the people around you, how miraculous they are, how they're not supposed to exist. When I'm experiencing despair, I look at the friends alongside me and I'm like, oh my gosh, you are a testament that something is really right and just in this world because you're here and you start to see love out externally. And then soon when you begin to notice love, you notice it internally. Mm. And then you start to move into love. And then that's where freedom comes from. Mm. So my sort of bigger theory of change is it's only through doing this intimate, emotional healing work right. that becomes this political work of solidarity. I think a lot of people think that you have to flip it, that you have to become an ally first, but right. that allyness in so many ways, I question because it's people's commitments are about their ego, about Mm -hmm. seeming like a good person, doing the right thing, not actually rooted in a deeper understanding of ecology that we're all interconnected.
1: I'm listening to you talk about the difficulty, this is like so endemic to the human or the modern condition. We are so um, uncomfortable with any binary. It's like, yes, of course, it, you you can feel grief and bullion at the same time. We love the zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we are so uncomfortable with this idea that there most of life is a gray area and everything is on a spectrum, whether it's gender, or sexuality. You know. Everything. And so I wonder, as you teach, you know, through your, your poetry through forums like this, like, what are the ways that people can sort of relax the binary thinking around things? Does it come from love and self forgiveness? Like, how do we start to relax this idea of right and wrong and black and white and, and, and painful and beautiful?
2: Hmm. You know, here's a hypothesis. I think that when it comes to our own lives, we hold room for nuance. But then when it comes to everyone else, we're policing everyone else into these binaries and boxes.
1: Because like I don't know. I feel like in our own lives, it's like we're sublimating our shame. We're sublimating the parts of ourselves that we don't like. We're and we're pretending that we have forgiveness. But as you say, like so many of us haven't done the, f- the work, which is excruciating and takes years. And it's probably easier to have a drink than to feel the grief that you speak of, you know? Yes.
2: At the risk of not creating another binary. Yes. and <laughs> And notice how, what happens when we fall in love. We love people. Who are often not the best. But
1: aren't we in trial about the ways that they're not the best?
2: Sometimes. And sometimes we can hold both. Like when I think about my love of my parents, for example, I'm like, oh my goodness. (laughs) There's so much here that is wrong. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that's right. There's so much that you've done wrong. And there's so much that I believe in you. What love allowed me to do was to do this simultaneous duality work, mm-hmm. because I cared enough about someone to hold simultaneity. Mm-hmm. What love does is it arrests our attention, captivates us, and gives us the opportunity to really hold complicatedness. And that, that's what true love is. A lot mm-hmm. of people who say that they're in love or whatever, and they're not doing that, that's not love love for me actually is being able to sit with one another's multitudes yes and so what happens like let's say this right now around the ukraine refugee crisis one of the critiques that's been coming out is okay obviously what is happening over there is horrific but so is what's happening everywhere in the world why do we only have selective empathy for Mm -hmm. refugees who are white versus millions of black and brown refugees who have sought asylum in the US for so long. We're able to see ourselves often because of the ways we've been primed from racism with people fleeing from Europe and able to afford sympathy, empathy, simultaneity, but that's because of love ultimately. So what I'm trying to suggest is what if we took that love that we've been taught has just been to see people who are like us and we actually cast a wider net, that love would allow us to see every single refugee as worthy. That love would allow us to see every single refugee as struggling. So what I'm suggesting here then is it's not a new skill that we have to learn to hold nuance. What I'm suggesting is let's look at the places where we already hold nuance. Mm. And let's take the lessons from those loving moments and expand that to more. Because I think everyone holds, like I think one of the things people say to me is, why are you inventing new genders and new words? It's so complicated. I'm like, you understand like NCAA sports brackets. That's really complicated. But because you love sports, you put in the time to understand those nuances. So there are ways in which love is motivating people to do complex thinking. It's just that people are only loving certain things versus others. So what I always try to do is never operate from the premise that people don't have something, don't have the capacity to learn. Like so often people will tell me, people just aren't ready for what you have to say. And I reject that. People are always ready. People already always have the skills. You just have to reactivate where it is and put it into a new place. So that's why when I speak about love, even when I'm saying you have to come into touch with your lovelessness, and every story of lovelessness and grief and pain, there's still a narrative of love because in order to even say, I've only known lovelessness, you're practicing self-love because that's a really difficult truth to name. And the fact that you name that truth suggests that there's some desire in you for healing. So there is always a desire in us for healing. There is always in us a desire for expansion and community. It's just that that desire gets narrowed and misdirected. That's Mm -hmm. what anxiety is, misdirected love. That's what anger is, misdirected love. That's what hatred is, misdirected love. And so my job as a teacher is not to teach people how to love, but rather to take the places that they're already loving, show that as love, remind them, and expand that.
1: It's really interesting... Living in a time where we're having these conversations. Although, if I understand correctly, this idea of male, female gender is actually quite modern. So I'm saying we're we're having this conversation now, even though this used to be sort of just part of the world. So now that we're living in a time where this is such an important conversation, you know, people are challenged by this idea of transgenderness. like in the DSM, it was you know considered a, a mental illness at some point. It's like it's been in the culture in a way that now we're able to start to look at it with acceptance and curiosity. Like you said in the beginning, you're doing this in a punk rock way, right? It's very conscious, right? The way that you are expressing yourself in the world, you know that it's challenging for people who have other ideas of like what we're supposed to look like in society or walking down the street. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that chutzpah and like punk rockness and how you're able to cultivate that without fear. And at what point do you shake off that judgment. You know, you talk about having your hair, your earrings as a way of like starting the conversation.
2: Yeah, totally. You know, I'm really glad to speak to you at this moment because right now there are over 200 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation in the U.S. And it's frankly a state of emergency facing trans and non-binary people with so many draconian bills trying to criminalize us from public life and disappear us. And it's it's deeply upsetting to me, mm. because this still just gets discussed as a minority issue. And I, I want to help everyone understand that this is not about a small percentage of the population. This is about all of us. It's about our right to freedom of expression. It's about our right to fluidity. It's about our right to humanity. And And I want to Answer that by answering your question around how I do this. So here's the truth. People look at me and they ask, how do you become fearless? And that's the wrong question. I have fear every day. I constantly experience fear. The question should be, how do you do it anyways, even though you have fear? And the way that I do it is I curate a
1: a real definition of bravery, right?
2: Yeah. I curate a dinner party fear sitting over here, anxiety is over here, (laughs) shame is over here, and I welcome them. And I say, good evening. I know that you're here to stay. What do you have to say? And so they speak to me and I engage with it, but I'm like, okay, cool. Here's what I have to say. And that's the missing piece. It's not about conquering fear. It's about developing intuition. And most people listen to their fear voice as if that's their intuitive voice but they're separate. Mm. Intuition is emotionally neutral. And I learned that from one of my personal coaches, Maury Fontana. so I wanna shout her out. Mm-hmm. But our intuitive voice is emotionally neutral and it's just kind of clear like water. Okay, here's what it is. Fear voice is always emotionally charged. It's panic oriented. It's what are people gonna think? It's the neighbors, it's all those things. Yeah. So it's about being able to decipher the difference between your intuitive voice and your fear voice and recognizing that most people haven't done the work to even excavate their intuitive voice from their fear voice so they're moving from their fear voice so what are these anti-LGBTQ legislations but people's own fears put on public display so in that way i want to shift the conversation as in there's no such thing as transgender issues there are issues that non-trans people have with themselves that they're taking out on us These are people putting their own fears on display that have no no basis in reality. They just exist in their fear echo chamber. Oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if, what if. People focus on what if, and they forget what is. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between the fear voice and the intuitive voice. So the way that I do it is I have like razor sharp focus on my intuitive voice. And that came from being a creative writer. And I want to speak especially to women and trans listeners right now. In a patriarchal society, often the only self-image we have, the only self-narrative we have, is what cis men have told us we should be. And that's why the history of feminist literature matters so much to me. Is it's because it's one of the few forums in the world where women and trans people can actually say, what do I want to be? and where you don't even have to be a body, you just write. And so the way that I developed an intuitive voice is I started to write. Mm. The most writing I do is not public. I keep a daily diary of every single thing that I think and feel. And I've done this now for almost 10 years. So you can ask me, what were you feeling on March 15th, 2014? And I can let you know what exactly I was feeling. Mm. And that work has continued to save my life because then when the fear voice comes in, I can go back to March 15, 2014 and say, I wasn't afraid then. I actually was making this decision and it made so much sense. And so I'm able to see how actually fear warps reality because I have reality right there. And that's what feminist art is. We're not just representing reality, we're creating reality. We're showing everyone, hey, when I take a picture of myself, self-portraiture for me, is not just about trying to convince other people. It's about trying to look at myself and say, this is me on my own terms. This is my reality. So when the fear voice comes in and says, wouldn't life be easier if I remember, remember how happy and beautiful I felt when I took this photograph? Remember how they're trying to take that joy away from me? Not today. So actually writing and creating art creates evidence for our intuitive voice which allows us to remember that we exist, not Mm. that fear can co-author our narrative. So what's needed more than anything right now to respond to this rise of anti-LGBTQ sentiment is deep healing work. Mm. It's not enough for me to just do education of the mind. I want to have education of the heart. And I want us to be really honest that there's often two predominant reactions when people see authenticity. One is people are magnetized by it. And they say, teach me how to live that kind of authentic life. The other is people are repelled by it because they're saying, wait, what do you mean that I get to be free in this life? What do you mean that I don't have to like compromise my authenticity for the comfort of other people? And what we're seeing is that being staged at an international level right now. And those of us who are magnetized by one another's light because that's my relationship now to authenticity. When I see it, I'm like, teach me, that's amazing. How did you do it? That's cool. I'm not threatened or destabilized. I'm like, awesome. You've got a lot. I've got a lot to learn. It's humbling. It's beautiful. Now, what I feel like those of us who are magnetized by this, now the next work is how do we teach people that they need this when they don't even know that they're suffering? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the creative work for our generations, for artists right now is the secret is most people don't even know that they're suffering. Most people don't even know that what they're living is unhappiness, grief, depression. Most people have become so accustomed to pain that when they see someone like me advocating for the right to wear what you want, they see that as a luxury and not an essential thing that all people should have. What trans life is doing is showing people that they're in pain. And the way that they dismiss us is by saying, that's just cosmetic. That's just luxury. You just want to be a snowflake. You want to be different. But what they're actually saying is, what do you mean I get to be different? What do you mean I get to be unique? And so what I want more than anything right now. And what is do this, I have to
1: risk? Like, what does that yes. mean to my own life?
2: Yes. What do I have the,
1: to give up? You know, who do I have to divorce? Who do I, whatever the case may be.
2: Yes. And what I really want everyone listening to understand is on the other side of that fear and on the other side of that, what if is the kind of stability you've been seeking your entire life. The reason that we heal is because it brings us internal peace. Mm. And this idea of internal peace, which I often use as joy or dignity interchangeably, is a really important concept to me that I feel like we often don't speak about in in the Western psyche, which is so focused on peace is uh, how other people treat you. But here's the secret, secret, secret. We can't control other people, baby, but we can control how we treat ourselves. We can control what kind of energy we let into our life. So Mm -hmm. I cannot control people's reactions to me, but I can control my reaction to their reactions. So that shift has allowed me to deal with fear is okay. People might say, ew, that's a nasty man in a dress when I walk down the street. And then I could choose to be like, oh my gosh, so upsetting. Or I could say, no, honey, that's a fabulous man and a dress to you. <laughs> and then immediately I'm reclaiming my peace. So the way that I practice this is that when people come at me with this lower frequency, their negative energy, their insecurities and projections onto me, I don't indulge it. I'm like, I see your bait. I'm not going to take it. Mm-hmm. I, I love myself too much to ruin my ecosystem for your self-hatred.
1: And yet you also parlay it into a lesson, like on social media, when people attack you, you, you're very forthright and articulate about seeing their pain and helping them see, at least is the way I read it, that, you know, their pain is what's causing the projection, their unrealized self, the ways in which they've lied to themselves is what is making them triggered
2: by... Mm-hmm. Estelle Perel talks about the need to replace shame with self-esteem.
1: Yeah.
2: And and I see that being staged on me over and over and over and over again. I'm like, you need self-esteem. And the only way that you can get that is through shaming me. And that's never going to give you self-esteem because you're going to have to keep on shaming. That's not sustainable. It's not enduring. It's ephemeral and it's fleeting. And we both know that you're gonna go home and cry yourself to sleep. We both know that you hate yourself more than you hate me. We both know that this is a distraction from what you need to be doing. How did I learn to know that when I was predisposed to think that my neighbors mattered more? I wrote. And this is why, like, I feel like there's no such thing as apolitical art because as artists, we tap into that creative voice And that saves our lives over and over and over and over again. Because I know that even when there's destruction around me, I can create something beautiful. I know that even if you take away my safety, even if you take away my rights, I can sit in my head and I can write a beautiful song or poem and you cannot take away my imagination. And so knowing that gives me the power to to show up in the world every day as I do
1: because that is cultivation of self energy. I mean, I, I sort of experienced a bit of this as having been a public figure for so long and been had a lot of projection and derision and misunderstanding. And that was a key turning point for me when I realized that I was representing something unrealized in, in somebody. And Although it's a painful process, you know, whether, whether you're a public person or not, whether you're just in society and you're shouldering all kinds of conforming or, or projections from other people, but like what you're doing is facilitating healing and sort of, you know, shining the mirror back onto people and saying, Hey, just like contemplate this, just think about this, which, which is so powerful.
2: I want to be clear that I'm still in the trenches. Yes, like, of course, we
1: <laughs> all are. Of course, know?
2: of course. There are days where I'm like so operating for my highest frequency. <laughs> and then there are man. days where I'm like crying, being like, why doesn't the world understand me? <laughs> what I'm really trying to work on is to break up with a need to be understood yeah. and break up with a need to be liked. Yeah. Because both of those needs come from a desire to be validated by the status quo. And if my job on earth is to be a change agent, why would I want the status quo to validate me? The preexistent parameters and definitions are the ones I'm trying to change. Mm-hmm. So when I look at people who have catalyzed meaningful change historically, people did not like them when they were making the changes that they were making in their life. And they did it anyways, you know? My, my greatest sort of writer and inspiration for me is James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And I really recommend people read James Baldwin's essays. And he writes about this very articulately. He says, you don't like me. It really hurts my feelings that you don't like me. But my job as a writer is to reveal the unconscious of the nation. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna keep doing it anyways, even if you don't wanna hear it. Mm-hmm. And James Baldwin's persistence gave me the ability to be persistent. And that's what it is, is it's not, I can't give you a template of what it means to live a free life, but what I can show you is that I'm trying and that people before me have tried and that what we have to do is just give each other permission constantly to keep on trying to be free.
1: Absolutely. And it's, it's like, yeah, that line in your poem, new year's revelations, which is how I found you. Well, I'll paraphrase, but you know, you're not for everybody. How, how gorgeous, how devastating, like, again, like there's so much freedom in, in understanding that you're not going to be for everybody. And, and that, you know, of course, like it can hurt and we, and we are all kind of a work in progress in the ways in which we are trying to shore ourselves up and be that, you know, have that degree of loyalty to ourselves. And it is a process. And, you know, I still get my feelings hurt as well, but this is just like, why having you, you know, as a teacher and a a thought leader is, is so profound because you're always finding like the love angle and the self energy angle, which is so amazing. And I just wanted to ask you, you talk about, having grief or having as guests at your table, you know, sort of like the roomy poem, the, the guest house, kind of like inviting in all of these aspects of yourself. And I wonder is grief different for you now than it was when you were in that important phase of your life where you were not fully living your truth. Like, was that a different kind of grief that you have now?
2: Yes. Because back then, grief was my entire identity. Grief was my personality. I wore it like a badge of pride, a family heirloom. And therefore, I judged everyone because I was like, you don't know my pain. I only knew myself through my pain, which meant there was no room for pleasure, no room for spontaneity or delight or wonder. There was just the kind of calcification of my grief. That became a look. Mm. Now grief comes and goes. Grief is ephemeral and not permanent. When grief knocks on my door, I let it in and we hang out. And then it knows that it's got to go. Suffering has become a visitor, not an identity. So it's not that I don't suffer. It's that I know that my core, my true core is one of peace. And that grief cannot conquer my peace because my peace is my natural orientation. And that's what I believe the natural orientation of the universe is. And that's what I believe actually what we were to return to the beginning of the conversation when we were born free was we were born at peace. And so, so much of the work of maturity actually is the immaturity. And what we call immaturity is actual maturity. What we have to live our adult lives doing Is being able to return to that profound sense of wonder, possibility, peace, and joy and freedom that we all had. And so when people say to me, like, you remind me that freedom is real, what they're actually saying is, you remind me what it used to feel like before I had shame. And it's something in you. So let me be a lighthouse that helps you see what you once were. Don't leave it at just like, alok or just trans people, because that's where the dehumanizing happens, is that we replace tragedy with triumph. We put people on pedestals and prevent them from being humans. It's the same projection. What I really am trying to do in the world is to actually say within all of us, within all of our DNA, within all of our hearts is a kernel of possibility. And we can either water that or we can continue to stifle its growth. And what I want is not a conversation just about gender. That's the tip of the iceberg. Gender is a location to have this bigger conversation, which is who are you outside of what you've been told you should be? And asking that question every morning is my daily practice. Who am I gonna be today? Who am I gonna create in myself? How am I gonna live my best life and not wait for heaven, but embody it here right now? How am I gonna choose love over fear? Because our brains don't just contain memory, they are memory. Mm -hmm. And so actually the way that we relate to the world becomes the world. And so that's where this internal peace stuff is really important, is we have to shift the ways that we relate. You made me cry.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, I really love you. You're just, you're such a blessing to this world. And thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Alok Menon. You can find Alok on Instagram at Alok V. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.